All right, we're in Titus chapter 1. Uh, you're going to hear me say that for a few weeks, but we're in Titus chapter 1, and the issue at hand uh, is what we've been studying the last couple weeks, and that is godly leadership. What is godly leadership in the church supposed to look like? What are the characteristics of a godly leader in the church? God has a blueprint for the church. He loves the church. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the church. He wants the people of God to come together as the church. What is the leadership supposed to do and behave and be characterized as? Uh, in November of, uh, of uh, this last November of 2020, November 24, 2020, an article in Christianity came out with the title this, Why We Can't Stop Talking About Hipster Pastors. The article goes on to highlight the dress of these pastors, the charisma of the pastors, and why the world can't stopping about these hipster pastors. Uh, there's even an Instagram, uh, what do you call it, an Instagram thing, uh, I, don't even, I don't even do Instagram very much, uh, called Preachers and Sneakers, where you can go on and you can see what sneakers the preachers are wearing that week. And to see if you like their $1,000, $1,200, $1,500 sneakers or their $800 t-shirts that they're wearing. And this article goes on to just talk about how we just can't stop talking about these hipster pastors. Talking about how important it is to social media that their visual, their clothes, they play a huge role in this. They play a huge role in the engagement of the audience. It goes on to say that, that masculinity in the church setting uh, as leaning towards men who have big beards. Sorry, guys, I, I can't, I can't. I, even if I tried, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Even saying that tattoos now are another way of relating to the people uh, with the pastor. I think what's happened, and you know this, is that we've gone a long way away from what the characteristics of a godly man are in the church. Our culture has moved farther and farther away from finding a man of God who is actually characterized uh, by godliness to trying to find a hipster leader. Image may be important to some people. Image may be important to all kinds of people, especially when it comes to social media and you care about the swag and the style and the clothes and the charisma of a person. But to God, it's not important. To God, that's not important at all. To God, what's important to a man who stands up and declares the word of God, what's important to a man who leads the church, what's important to, to a man who, who takes on the, the lead and is qualified to be an elder, is a man who is after God's own heart, the character of a man. That's what God cares about, the heart of a man. And God radically calls and uses men for his kingdom, not based on skill set or competence, but on character. And I only point out that article to you, and I only want to highlight that article to you so that we can, we can see that as a lens by which the world would view what, what a leader should look like, and then take that and go, okay, what does that say uh, in regards to God's word and his lens for a godly leader? A leader is the representative of God. He's the ambassador of God. The leader is to reflect the person of God and his leadership. He is called 
a representative for God, delivering the message of God, living the message of God, and inspiring others to do the same. He is a man of influence. He is a man of example. He is a man worthy of imitation, not because of success or charisma or social skills or shoes or social media or big personality or business acumen, but because of his character. And elders in the church, leaders in the church, must first think of themselves as representatives of God, ambassadors for God. And the church, then, is the embassy in a foreign world where we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship the Lord, to encourage one another in fellowship, and then we go out into the world and declare the name of Jesus Christ. And the elders and pastors of the church model who God is in their relationships, in their teaching, in their management skills, in their hospitality, in their humility, and in their grace, and in their forgiveness, and in their gentleness. And this was exactly the charge that was given to Titus from Paul. You can see it there in in verse 5. This is why, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus 1, 5, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I had appointed you. This was the job of Titus, to, to go into these, these home churches that were all over the island, to find the man of God who would rise up as the example and the ambassador for Christ, to, to be an example to the rest of the flock and appoint them as elders in the church, to be the leaders within the church. And then he lists off for Titus the qualifications of this godly man. Not all men will meet these qualifications. Not all men are qualified. Some have been disqualified. Others will not meet these qualifications of this high bar. And not everyone is qualified to lead the church. But here is what God has said is the blueprint for the characteristic of a godly leader. You can see it there. Number one, we looked at this Uh, a couple weeks back, is this. Godly leaders lead with faithful integrity. They lead with faithful integrity. Verse 6, if any man is above reproach. Secondly, godly leaders lead with faithfulness to their family. He is uh, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Next then is this, that godly leaders lead with blameless conduct or blameless behavior. And then lastly, we'll see this uh, next week, is that godly leaders lead with skillful teaching. Well, let's read uh, this morning verses 7 to 9 together. It says this, Titus 1, 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray together and we'll seek understanding from the Lord in these things. Heavenly Father, Again, we have the privilege to have our Bibles opened right there on our lap. 
to hear from you, to allow our hearts to submit to the written word of God. Lord, our desire is to learn, to understand, to have our hearts transformed as we submit to the truths that your word has to say. And there's only one way that we can do that, and that is by your spirit. And so we pray and we invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. To soften the areas of our heart that are hard. To allow our ears to hear. And for our minds to understand. And for our lives to be changed. So that we can become more like your son, Jesus Christ, in every way. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Godly leaders lead with blameless conduct. That's what is at hand here. And every character that every characteristic that we that we read uh, is a window into the heart of God. These aren't just characteristics of uh, that were just thrown together for fun or just thrown together because Paul thought this would be a great idea for the church. But this is actually a window into the heart of God. That Those descriptions there are a description of God. Paul is describing here the godly leader. He is pulling back for us the curtain as well to see the attributes of God, the reflections of the heart of God and how God operates. And therefore, what Paul is describing then for us as I break the pulpit. I'm so angry at you guys right now. I broke the pulpit. I got nails poking out at me. Paul is describing for us the reflections of who God is. The heartbeat of a godly leader beats at the same time as God's heart. The godly leader values what God values. You could say this, that the godly leader is a walking billboard of the characteristics and attributes of God. You want to see the holiness of God, you see it in the godly leader. You want to see the forgiveness of God, you see it in the godly leader. You want to see how God's uh, people or how God would steward something, you see it in the godly leader. You want to see humility, you find it in the godly leader. Because that godly leader is modeling who God is. He is showing to the rest of the church who God is, the characteristics of who God is. And this is what God values. There's 13 values here that are found in the godly leader. I just read them for you, but let me just list them off for you. Maybe be helpful to do so. Number one, he is a steward. He is not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. He's not greedy for money. He's hospitable. He loves what is good. He is self-controlled. He is upright. He is holy. He is disciplined. He is a teacher of the word. And it says there very clearly who he's talking of. You see it in, in uh, uh, verse 7. It's even there in verse 5. It says elders. And then in verse 7, it says an overseer. Uh, the word here is, is for bishop, where we have the word bishop. Uh, and this man, this elder, this leader of the church must be, verse 7, the first value there is that he is God's steward. Above reproach. Meaning this, he is the house manager of God's church. 
That's exactly what the word steward means. It means house manager. It's someone who has been given the deed to another man's house. By divine calling and appointment, the pastor or elder of the church holds the deed and is accountable to God for the way that he manages it. It's not the pastor's church. It's not the elder's church. It is God's church, and the men qualified for eldership to lead the church are simply stewards of it. They steward the church's time. They steward the church's finances. They structure the events and the services. They put in place uh, the theology of the church and the practice of the church. All of it lines underneath the role of the elders as they steward what is God's. They're taking care of somebody else's property, taking care of somebody else's people. It's God's house with God's children. It is God's church. It is the one whom he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for. And the leaders of the church simply manage somebody else's personal property. But it's not just the elders who are charged in Scripture to be managers or stewards. Everyone is called to be a good steward of everything that they have. 1 Peter 4 and verse 10 says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We are all called to be faithful stewards of God's earth, of God's people. Everything of God's money that we have, everything falls under the possession of God, and we're just stewards of it. Sometimes we have that reversed, right? We think that we have all these great possessions. We own all these wonderful things. It is mine. We kind of build within ourselves this idea that everything is mine. And if, and if I want, I'll give some of it back to God. I might, I might steward it for God. Not realizing that everything is a gift of God. Especially the local church. And the elder is called to be faithful in his stewardship of it. Faithful as he stewards the family of God, recognizing that all of this is a gift of God. We don't deserve any of this, right? We don't deserve each other. We don't deserve friendships. We don't deserve the family of God that he's been given to us. This is all a blessing of God, and we need to be good stewards of what God has given to us. And it starts with the leadership of the elders. Well, notice now what Paul does after he says an overseer, uh, um, as God's steward, verse 7, must be above reproach. He goes on now to list for us sinful behaviors of, man, everything's falling apart today. I was like, hey, thanks for all the setup. You guys are doing a great job. And then she's like, man, like, like what, am I going to fall in a hole next? I mean, is there a sinkhole here? I'm just going to drop down next. You guys do a great job. I love church planting. It's so fun. All right, here we go. Five sinful behaviors that are listed in this characteristics of God that we need to be aware of that will keep us from being managers of God's church. Number one is this. Arrogance. Arrogance. Look at the list. 
as God's stewards, you must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. Other translations would say this, he must not be self-willed. Someone who is self-willed or someone who is arrogant wants their own way. They're stubborn. They're prideful. They see it their way and nobody else's way. They're inconsiderate of, of others' opinions. They do not seek counsel when they are in need. Self-willed, arrogant people believe that they don't need help spiritually. They believe that they don't need accountability. They don't need friends. They don't need mentors. They don't need discipleship. They're self-willed. All they need is themselves. They say they love God. They say they love the things of God. And they may lead others to believe that they are godly, but their own self-will gets in the way of acting like God and submitting to the authority of God in their life. They speak a humble game, but they play a prideful one. In fact, this is exactly what it says in Titus 1, uh, in verse, uh, uh, verse 16. It says this, They profess to know God, but they deny them by their deeds. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And the behavior of a godly man is that they would be humble. They cannot be characterized as an arrogant person, a self-willed person who needs nobody else in their life. They've got a shield around them that says, all I need is me and no one else. And I'm going to stand up in front of you and tell you that you need people in your life, but I don't. It's arrogance. Paul David Tripp says this, in regards to leaders and humility, he says this, a leader is characterized by acknowledging that he deserves none of the recognition, power, or influence that his position affords him. It means knowing as a leader that as long as sin still lives inside you, you will need to be rescued from you. Humility means you love serving more than you crave leading. It means owning your inabilities rather than boasting in your abilities. It means always being committed to listen and learn. Humility means seeing fellow elders not so much as serving your success, but serving the one who called you. It means being more excited about others' commitment to Christ than you are about their loyalty to you. It's about fearing the power of position rather than craving it. It's about being more motivated to serve than to be seen. This is the heartbeat of our Savior Jesus Christ. He was humble. He was marked by humble, by humility. He was not arrogant. He was always considerate of others. In fact, when he walked into the room, he tried to be the lowliest in the room. John 13, he was there with his disciples. What did he do? He washed their feet. Jesus didn't walk into the room, survey the room, and go, yeah, I'm probably the godliest person here. He didn't get into a conversation and try to figure out how, how he, could, he could make sure the other person felt really, really low. Every conversation that Jesus was in, he found himself on the lowest rung, saying to people, how can I serve you? How can I love you? I am nothing here but a servant for you. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many, as it says in Mark 10, 
45. Jesus never had the humble brag going on either. The one that masks humility, masks pride, I should say, with a humble brag. Paul reminds Titus, hey, when you're looking for a man, find the man that's willing to do anything for the church. Find the man when he walks into the room is looking out to serve other people, not, not for people to recognize him or recognize what he's doing. Find the man that just wants to serve other people and get as low as possible. And when he walks into conversations and he's talking to people, you can tell all this man wants to do is to make sure you feel valued, not himself feel valued. Look for the truly humble man. Because that's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus was. Philippians 2, 5, 7, and 8 talk about this humility that even took him to death, even death on the cross. So Titus was tasked with this job. Find the humble man. Secondly was this. He is not to be quick-tempered. Not to be quick-tempered or or not to be uh, arrogant, or excuse me, not to be angered, quickly angered. Leaders in the church are to be self-controlled with their emotions, especially that of anger. And this word here uh, that is used in the Greek, it, it refers to a man who has a propensity to get angry quickly. We're not talking about a, a single a, uh, outburst of anger, but this is the habit of the man that he is quick-tempered. He, he, he easily gets angered. We would say this, that, that this man has a short fuse. He could push his buttons and immediately he's, he's going to get angered. I, I grew up in a family, uh, four boys, and I'm number three on the list. And when I was younger, um, my parents, and my, especially my older brother Mike, if you really want stories, you ask him. He, would, he, would tell, he tells everybody that I was this super angry child, that I was filled with anger. And you guys are like, really? Like that? Yeah. And I'll tell you why. It was because of my number the number two brother in line Aaron he would just push and push buttons left and right to the point where I would just have these outbursts at anger I don't know if it's the second child thing like it's like hey I'm the second child guess what I get to do I get to push everybody's buttons in the family until they all get angry then I just smile and go yeah that's yeah this is great I love being the second child but this is my brother Aaron he pushed my buttons to the point of anger and you know what happens like, this thing about that yeah as a child that, that's what happens but even as adults that happens right we can push each other's buttons to the point where, where there's people who are just quick-tempered. And the way they respond is with these outbursts of anger. And Titus is saying that man who has these outbursts of anger, they're, they're known by their anger. They have a short fuse. That man is not fit to lead in the church. Because we know this, that quickly angered men can be a tornado in relationships. Quick-tempered men can rip relationships apart very quickly. They can destroy families. They can destroy marriages. They can destroy a relationship between a parent and a, and a child. And, and potentially, they have the power through their anger to, de to destroy the local church. Proverbs 29, 22 and Proverbs 22, 24, and 25 talk about the dangers of 
an angry man. You say, well, then what is this? Then that, that what do we see then in the characteristic of God, of, of who God is and the attributes of God that a godly man is to be like? Well, a godly man is to be not quickly tempered, but what? Patient. Patient. A godly man is a patient man. And patience is learned over time. You learn how to be patient with people. You learn how to be patient with your kids. You learn how to be patient with other kids that aren't yours. You learn to be patient in your home. You learn to be patient in the car. You learn to be patient in traffic. You learn to be patient when you've got that glass Heinz 59 ketchup bottle flipped over and you're waiting for it to come out and you're pounding that thing. Like, why isn't the ketchup coming out? This is not coming out fast enough. You're learning to be patient in every situation. You're patient when you're a task-oriented person, and that person on your team get, didn't get the job done fast enough. They slowed you down. You learn to be patient. And listen, here it is. The summary statement here is this. We reflect the glory of God in our lives when we are patient. We reflect the glory of God in our lives when we are patient. Not when we're frustrated and angry. Anger's roots are found in selfishness. Anger's roots are found in the self-willed, pride-filled person who doesn't get their way fast enough. And the fruit of that is strife and disunity. And it's displayed in these outbursts of anger. So Titus is told this, as you're looking for these men, look for the man who is not quick-tempered. Look for the man who's not arrogant. And then number three is this, look for the man who's not a drunkard. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. Clear prohibition against getting drunk. This is a warning passage, being addicted to alcohol. This is not a prohibition against drinking, but a pro prohibition against getting drunk. Drinking to the point of excess, to the point of being intoxicated by it. I want you to see something here, because this will help us understand why this is important. Look over with me in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, because we've got to see this. This is so important for us to understand why this would be in this list. Why it's not becoming of a godly man to be drunk ever. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Here we go. You want to know how to walk wise? This is about as clear as it gets. Okay, this, That is about as clear as an opening statement as we could get about how we're to walk as a wise person. Verse 16. Making the most of your time. Because the days are evil, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now stop right there. Paul could have said anything right here. He said, hey, don't be foolish. Make the most of your time. Don't be wise. He could have said anything in this moment right here to really get to the heart of what he's talking about. What does he choose to go after? Look what it says. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. 
but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for, the, for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to everyone out of reverence for Christ. What is he saying? He is saying this, you want to walk wise? Uh, you, want, you want to make sure that, that you are spending your time the way you should? Then be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with that which can overtake your mind. Don't fill yourself up with something that will cause you uh, to, to lose orientation. It's a contrast statement. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit instead. We are to consume ourselves with this desire to be filled with the Spirit. Not to be filled with wine. Not to be drunk with wine. Alexander Strzok says this about the leader, understanding that the importance of this. He says this, elders work with people, often those who are troubled. If an elder has a drinking problem, he will lead people astray and bring reproach upon his church. His overindulgence will interfere with spiritual growth and service, and it may well lead to more degrading sins. And so what is the man of God supposed to be characterized as? He's supposed to be characterized as a man who is filled with the Spirit. A man who's addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in his heart. This is what fills his life on a daily basis. He doesn't consume himself with filling himself with anything that is going to keep him from being filled with the Spirit. So Paul makes sure Titus understands this. This man is to not be drunk with wine. He's not a drunkard. Number four, just got to keep moving, is this. He's not violent. He's not violent. Not a violent person. Uh, uh, First Timothy, maybe you guys grew up with this word, pugnacious. We never use that word ever. I've never even heard that word used outside of the Bible, pugnacious man. We just say this, he's a fighter. That's what he is. He, he fights. Uh, it, has, it has to do with the idea of someone who has a bad temper, who's irritable, and who's out of control. More specifically, this has to do with a man who likes to strike people. He, he's a violent person. Uh, he's prone to physical assault. He's the guy that, that when uh, argument comes up or the disagreement come up, he, he wants to fight. He, he wants to take the argument or the, uh, or the disagreement out back. And a violent man will not help his sheep at all. A violent man will only hurt his sheep. He'll crush them with the fear of being uh, literally fighting with them, physically fighting with them. Instead of handling the situation in love, the dispute with patience and love, and the attribute of God, then, uh, that we see here, that, that Paul wants us to understand uh, as we become more like Christ, is that, that we are not violent, but that we are gentle and meek. In fact, in 1 Timothy uh, 3, three, which is a parallel passage to this section, it says these exact words. Uh, it says, uh, an elder is not violent, but gentle. Gentle. Gentleness is a sign of godliness. 
sometimes you think, well, you know, men, they got to be, they got to be tough and they, they got to have dirt under their fingernails all the time. And they got to be these rough, you know, masculine people and gentleness isn't a part of what a man is. Well, that's exactly not true. It says that an elder is not violent, but gentle. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, which is another way of saying blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Which means this, that, that a godly man, as you're pursuing godliness in your life, men, you are known for gentle speech. You're gentle in relationships. You're, you're gentle in response. In fact, Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Godly men deal with people in gentleness. I think of Jesus and the the woman at the well where he confronted her and her sins and how harshly he could have acted to her, but instead he, he acted very gently with her. Called her to repentance and obedience in a gentle way. Jesus had the opportunity time and time again to strike back at those who opposed him and those who were against him, but he did not. He was gentle. And again, this isn't just an attribute for, for the elders of the church. This is an attribute for all of us as we pursue godliness. In Philippians 4, 4, it says this, Let your gentleness be known to all men. In 1 Timothy 6, 11, we'll look at it a little bit later, it says that we are to pursue gentleness. How often do you think, hey, I'm going to wake up today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on my gentleness today? I mean, we really don't just kind of wake up and go, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to just try to be gentle today. But that's, that's what that passage means in 1 Timothy 6.10, is that we're going, to, we're going to pursue gentleness with people. In James chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, it says that wisdom from above, wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, and gentle. Because this is the character of God. Aren't you so thankful that God's gentle with us? I mean, man, every time we sin, God has every right to not be gentle with us. He can be very harsh with us, but he's gentle. God is a peacemaker. He's gentle in his response. We are to be gentle. We are not to be biting one another. We're not to be cold with one another. We're to be warm. And our speech is to be filled with grace and love and kindness even in rebuke. So the man of God then is not to be violent, but he's to be gentle, characterized as a man of gentleness. Last one we'll look at this morning, number five, is this. He's not to be greedy for gain. Not to be greedy for gain or, or not to have a love of money, as it says in 1 Timothy 3. Some passages say this, he's not fond of sordid gain, meaning someone who is always after money. They're always after wealth. They're always after gaining possessions, and, and they're even willing to go after it in a way that is shameful. Basically saying to themselves, it doesn't matter how I make the money as long as I make the money. This man lacks integrity and discernment. He turns a blind eye to a business deal, knowing it is shady or deceitful, or it's for dishonest gain. And it's not just the world, uh, or the corporate world that this happens. This happens, also happens, unfortunately, with, with pastors as well who would stand up in front of a congregation and manipulate the church for money. 
supposedly doing signs and miracles and telling them if you just kind of throw some money in, God's going God to automatically quadruple your money if you just give. That's sordid gain. And Paul isn't saying here, don't, don't pay the pastor. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, pay the pastor double his worth, especially those who work hard in word and doctrine. But it's not about the money that the pastor is to work. He doesn't seek it in dishonest gain. You've got to see this with me in 1 Timothy 6. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy 6? Just back a couple pages to the left. If you're on a device, you're going to scroll up. 1 Timothy 6. It speaks about contentment. Verse 6. It says this, Godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Some of you thought that was just a fancy slogan that somebody made up a long, long time ago. No, no God, God came up with that one. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of it. Some of you thought your parents came up with that. No, God came up with that. I brought you into this world, I can take you out. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life to that which you were called. Pastor John MacArthur says this, he says, Any man who is enamored by money will compromise himself and somehow will gain in a sordid way. The man who is in spiritual leadership is not to be greedy. He is not to be indulgent because he can do so, he can be so easily corrupted. He handles God's money. If you have a man who is selfish and greedy and you put him uh, in leadership in the church, you have a very volatile situation. They're to be content. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. They don't love money. In fact, the sign of a pastor or, or a leader who is in love with money in the church is generally a sign of a false prophet. They do it for sordid gain. They use the pulpit for power and prestige and to fatten their pocketbook. And we need to be careful of that. But we also need to know this, that your spiritual life is connected to your finances. Listen to this quote. Okay, listen. I mean, if you guys have tuned out, come back to the dial that we're in here and listen to this quote. We see that no church, okay, no church or Christian can be spiritually healthy if they ignore finances. There are more than 600 references to prayer in the Bible, almost 500 references to faith, 
but over 2,350 references to money. Jesus talked more about finances than heaven and hell combined than this. There is no discipleship apart from stewardship. Your spiritual life is connected to your finances. You can fake prayer. You can fake Bible study. You can fake worship, but you cannot fake stewardship. Your bank account and your giving statements will tell all. Your life story is written in your bank statement. It reflects your time, your goals, priorities, convictions, and relationships. And leaders, especially elders, need to lead out financially and setting an example for the church to understand what contentment is, to understand how to be a steward of their finances because they understand better than anybody that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the admonition here is this. The man who is greedy for gain, the man who is a lover for, of money, he can't be in charge of the church. He's not a good example for the church to follow. Because if you're greedy for money, then you are the exact opposite of what God is. What is God? God is a giver. God is characterized as a giver. God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. God has given us so many things. And when we say, I don't need to be a giver, I'll be the greedy one, you're being the exact opposite of who God is. Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 16, and sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 6 through 15 talk about this principle that you cannot, listen, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. The more you give to God in His work, the more He replenishes it in kind for you to continually give to God. You give with the heart right motivations. You, 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 you don't find yourself to be greedy or hoarding that which you have and that which you own, but you give it to God because you want to see the work of the ministry done. God's going to return it in kind to you with dividend. Because you can't outgive God. The characteristic then of, of who God is as a giver, then the characteristic of who the elder and the leaders of the church are is that they're givers and they lead out in the way that they give. And so Titus was to find this man, a man who is not arrogant. But like God, he's humble. He is not quick-tempered, but like God, he is patient. He is not a drunkard, but he is filled with the Spirit of God. He is not greedy for money, but like God, he is a generous giver. Well, that's only half the list. We'll take on the, the next half next week. As we close, ask yourself these questions. There's this list right there, all the things you're not supposed to be. What, what area of your life do you need to work on? What area of your life do you need to just say, you know what, I'll, I want to be a walking billboard for God. When people see me, they see a glimpse of who God is. Which one of those things, two of those things, do you need to work on this week? I need to work on my speech. I need to be more gentle. I need to work on, 
on on giving and, and find out if I'm giving the way I'm supposed to be giving. I, I need I need to work on on not being a drunkard. I need to put alcohol away from my life altogether. I just need to get rid of it because I don't want to be known as a drunkard. I, I, I'm a, I, I, you recognize in your life areas of pride that you need to ask God to remove from your life and to show you how to be humble. Let's not just know these things in our head, church. Let's, let's apply these things. Let's not just go, oh, okay, yeah, that, there's, there's the list, and that's it. We close our Bible, and then when I say open a Titus next week, we open it back up and go, oh, yeah, we learned about those things last week, but during the week we didn't do anything about it. Let's take the next step we need to take to make change in our life. And only you can take the responsibility upon yourself to do that. Well, before we, we close in prayer, Jonah's going to come up. He's going to lead us in a time of communion, and we're going to sing one more time. So, Jonah, why don't you come up and, and uh, lead us in communion. Joel, why don't you come up as well, and we'll have some com- communion together, and then Jonah will pray for us and, and close us out.